2: I get to bed, I get the storybook. Y'all tucked in? Here we go. Once upon a time, not long ago, when people wore pajamas and lived life love, where laws were stern and justice stood, and people were behaving like they ought to good, there lived a the little boy who was misled by another little boy, and this is what he said. Ran up the stairs up to the top floor. Opened up a door there. Guess who we saw? Who? Dave, the dope fiend, shooting dope. Who don't know the meaning of water nor soap? He said, I need bullets. Hurry up, run The dope fiend brought back a spanking shotgun. He went outside, but there were cops all over. Then he dipped into a car, a stolen Nova. Raced up the block, doing 83. Crashed into a tree near university. Escaped alive, though the car was battered. Rat a tat tattered and all the cops scattered. Ran out of bullets Still had static. Grabbed the pregnant lady, pulled out the automatic. Pointed out ahead, he said the gun was full of lead. He told the cops, Back off, for honey here's dead. Deep in his heart, he knew he was wrong, so he let the lady go and he starts to run on. Uh-huh. Siren. <laughs>
1: K.I.R.P. Radio!
3: When you're looking for real truth, real talk radio, make sure you log on to K.I.R.P. Radio Show dot com. Sunday nights live, 8 p.m. with your host... Rocco P. Good evening. Thank you for listening to the K.I.R.P. Radio Show. is Keeping It Real with Pudgy Miller. This is last... Last Sunday night of the month with me, your host Rocco Pesercio, Rocco P. I thank Pudgy for the opportunity to host this show. I thank him for the opportunity to share his platform with me. I have a hard time believing this is the last Sunday night of the month, and that's because we do have a fair amount of, uh, of the month left like through, uh, through next Saturday. But this is the last Sunday night. Tonight I wanted, to discuss, uh, I wanted to discuss the GOP delegate process, but I wanted to discuss it really kind of from a different angle. I wanted to give a backdrop into the bigger perspective of the two-party system. And what's going on with Trump is It's an excellent illustration we're seeing play out in real time as far as how the political process works. Uh, how the political process works and how the process that exists, the two-party system, uh, that really has a chokehold upon political power in America, it's designed to limit, not empower the individual. It's designed to limit, not empower the individual. It's designed to keep power in the hands of a small group of people. It's not designed to be a democratic system, whether uh, you consider yourself a Democrat, whether you consider yourself a Republican, or whether you're in the you know the huge number of people that are independents, and and think about it. Nip uh, Puddy was independent last time we spoke with him. That makes perfect sense. But they still have us. In other words, you're independent in the political system. You, you, in other words, you you refuse to sign up in a party. But when you get down to the ballots, I mean, who I mean, who who are you still going to vote for? And of course, you know, people in both parties mean they should. They should respect their constituents, they always don't uh theoretically, someone, if uh you know your representatives you know, at the state level, county level, county commissioners what what have you, you'd figure they should respect their constituents more if they're in their own party, but uh we seem to know uh that it's not the way it turns out. But before we get into the nitty gritty of uh, the delegate thing, and again I think it it's it's really it's an excellent illustration about how the the system is designed to limit and not encourage popular democratic participation. You have to look at i want to look at the bigger picture the powers that be and I've said this before on the show they give us false choices many uh probably many of the people listening tonight know. What I mean when I say that, and the false choice is that manifests itself in a lot of ways. The easiest way to understand is when you go into when you go to vote uh in a presidential race, when you go to vote for most federal offices, the rhetoric in other words the words uh the words will be different used by a Democrat and a republican okay that there's certain bases there's certain issues abortion would be one one example where the rhetoric yeah, you know, the words. The the alleged philosophy is different. Most Democrats, not all. Yeah, you know, there's been some uh, there's been pro-life Democrats, and there still are some of them in Congress. But in general, the Democratic Party will be strong proponents of abortion on demand. In general, not always. The Republicans will oppose abortion on demand. But how does it shake out? In the final analysis, the Republicans don't do anything. To stop abortion, the, the power exists at the state level to do that. It's it, it's relatively easy. It just takes political will. What do I mean? Uh, abortion on demand became the law of the land through a Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court decision is invalid on at least two counts. Number one, it violates the most fundamental human right we have, you know, the right to life. Then number two, the Supreme Court exerted itself over the states. There's nothing if you view abortion as uh, a health service okay i mean i don't I, obviously i see it as i see it as clinical law, or really you not know, surgical law uh, you know, yeah surgical death, i mean it's murder, but if you view it under the auspices of health care, federal government has no right they have they have no power whatsoever to to be involved in that arena okay it gets, it gets even worse thing about this, Supreme Court rules on it. We've been indoctrinated, we've been brainwashed over 100-plus years of so-called progressive education, it's really collectivist education, to believe that if the Supreme Court uh, rules on something, that that makes it law, not the case. The Supreme Court offers their opinion as the highest court of the land, and then in order for that opinion to take on legal precedent, it would have to be enacted by the legislature. So, in other words... Even if, even if Roe versus Wade, uh, even if the Supreme Court had jurisdiction to rule on that, and they certainly did not, in order for abortion to have become the law of the land, Congress would have had to pass laws to make that the case. So, they continue to lie to us. They continue to take advantage of the ignorance of, uh, you know, the pop uh, of the American public. And I do want to respect the American public. And I'm not saying that just because. Uh, you know, Trump has gotten a lot of votes, and I'm 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 a fan of Trump. Uh, but <laughs> I respect the American public in this in in this sense. When you look at when you look at the number of people that vote, okay, we have a higher turnout and higher voter participation during presidential election years. Okay, the founders did not envision that, and there's things that the Constitution could be improved that wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't attempt to change it now, considering the criminality in Washington, D.C. and the criminality in the state houses. Uh, But if we had had good people, if we had people that were trustworthy and honored their oath of office, yeah, we we could change the Constitution positively. What could we do? We could go back. We can make the senators directly elected by the state legislatures. Uh, People will talk about it's kind of like, it's really a fake issue in my mind. I talk about term limits, term limits okay this people some people well meaning people will think the way to rein in power in d c or the district of criminals to have term limits and I'd say that that would slow down the corruption, but it wouldn't stop it because you still have the same process as far as the parties getting people elected, and the people that stay in power are those that essentially uh, go along with yeah, you know, this duopoly, this two-party system, the agenda, that's obviously, I mean, that, that's by and large the same. It's by and large the same. Yeah, you know, we have financial interests that essentially control both parties, the same financial interest. The easiest way to look at that in modern times is to look at Goldman Sachs. I give you a historical example, too. The historical example goes back to Nicholas Biddle. When President Andrew Jackson was in the White House... He openly stated he would not renew the charter of the Bank of the United States. The Bank of the United States was a privately owned bank uh, that was controlling, uh, essentially, a good part of uh, the U.S. economy through through currency and credit. So Andrew Jackson came out and said he would not renew the charter. Back then, corporations, this is stuff they don't teach us in the approved textbooks, uh, (laughs) in government education. And granted, you go to private school, if you have your children in private school, Unless you're really diligent, I mean, if they're reading the same textbooks, they're getting, they're getting the same, they're getting the same sanitized, really distorted view of history. But back then, corporations didn't have eternal charters. You didn't get a charter; it would go on forever. It had to be renewed ten years or so. So Andrew Jackson made that point, and you had Nicholas Biddle, who I don't know if his position was president of the bank, the private bank of the U.S. that that had this broad power over the United States credit, credit and currency. And back then, so this is you know, early 1800s. Back then, Nicholas Biddle had the audacity, and you could check this out, and you could go to starpage.com or duckduckgo.com, look up Nick, Nicholas Biddle, uh, Andrew Jackson, and he said, "Well, if President Jackson, I'm paraphrasing, if President Jackson doesn't renew the charter on the bank, I'll just start a war." Okay, so you had you had the president of the private, uh, private central bank of the United States, privately owned central bank of the United States, telling the U.S. president uh, if he didn't get the charter renewed, he would just start a war. So think about it. if a if the financial interests then, in around 1830s or so, were powerful enough to say to tell a president of the United States that if they didn't get their way, they just start a war. Does that not make a lot of things, yeah? You know, Seem really clear now, uh, people wonder, you know people of all political stripes, people of all people that don 't vote, we don 't talk about people that don 't vote, but people of all stripes will think, why doesn't anything fundamentally change? why why doesn't anything fundamentally change Why is it so difficult to make any positive changes at, at the federal level? And you could make a real good argument that 's essentially the way it, it is at the state level too. Again, okay, I won't. I won't go off now, on uh, the so-called the Republican supermajority in the state of North Carolina. I, I won't. I won't go there. And uh, you know, I want to stick to my topic. But the reason things don't fundamentally change is we have the same financial interest, really yanking the change, so to speak. You know, being the puppet masters for for the leaders of both political parties. When I when I make a statement like that, I'm not saying every Democrat and every Republican uh, is controlled no. but Obviously, think about how against us, against the people. We've got 100 senators. They're not controlled by the state, by the state assemblies, by the state legislatures. If they were, think about it. I was going back to term limits before. It's better than term limits if the states control the senators, the duly elected senators. The states could shut down the federal government because if enough states didn't like what was going on in D.C., they could just call their senators back home. State legislators, they, they, they vote them in. They call them back. If, if a state, if, this, if the senators, uh, if, if federal senators didn't vote, did something that, that their states didn't like, the state legislatures could just replace them, depending upon state law. So far better than term limits would be going back to the Constitution which was originally written. So that, that, that's one way. How, how, how else do we see the, you know, the, the, this, this predominance, this control of the financial interests over both parties at this point? You look at Goldman Sachs. You look at Goldman Sachs. I I am no fan of Raphael Ted Cruz. There's many many reasons why. You know, I did a show on, on Raphael. How uh, to a large degree, how I believe he's manipulating, uh, conservative evangelical voters. Uh, it is theoretically possible Raphael is a believer in a biblical sense. I don't think so, but Ted Cruz has, has been controlled. He's been part of the establishment. His entire career and then uh, he gets elected to the USN as Canadian citizen then he reinvents himself as a constitutional conservative. Ted Cruz's wife works for Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is one of the most powerful private banks in the United States and they have a seat at the table. They're part of the private Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve is a privately owned banking cartel that has controlled the credit and the currency of the United States government over 100 years. This is this is part of the core problems that we have in Washington and in the country with this, you know, this really this death grip that the financial interests have over the political process. Ted Cruz's wife works for Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, you look at the power structure in Goldman Sachs, who let's look at some past Goldman Sachs CEOs, chief executive officers. You had a guy named John Corzine. John Corzine was CEO of Goldman Sachs. Then he ran for U.S. Senate from New Jersey. At the time, uh, that was the most expensive senator. He still may be. I, I didn't check the numbers before the show. But he, sent, he spent conservatively $60 million of his own money to get elected to the U.S. Senate from New Jersey. Now, you would ask yourself, why does a man spend $60 million to get elected to, to a job, U.S. Senate, which pays uh two hundred and fifteen, I think, $230,000 a year? And the answer is obvious. It's it's power and payoffs. Uh, you could do studies. You could see about how when people get elected to Congress, both the House and the Senate, and the Senate, yes, you know, it's a six-year term, so they're in a longer house, they have to run every two years. And uh, that's something else they changed in terms of concentration of power. The number of people in the House then became fixed by law, at four hundred and thirty five so you 've got four hundred and thirty five members of the House of Representatives you got one hundred in the Senate so you got five hundred and thirty five people. power is concentrated in the hands of a few. You think about u s Congress. the original representation i believe i didn 't pull i didn 't pull the constitution was one representative in the House for every i think thirty thousand people since they fixed the number at four hundred and thirty five now you have you have uh, is it close to well over 800,000 people per rep. <laughs> so what type of repre- representation can one person representing 800,000-plus you know, uh, people have? In other words, the access to that power. It's just as the population grows, the number of people in the House is fixed. Uh, again, the process is anti-democratic. It's designed to limit the access of the people to power and the influence of the people that have over power. Getting back to Goldman Sachs, he had John Corzine, okay, CEO of Goldman Sachs, runs for U.S. Senate. Then he became governor of New Jersey. Who was the uh, who you think who was CEO after after uh, of Goldman Sachs after John Corzine? A guy named Hank Paulson. Now Corzine was a Democrat. Hank Paulson was a Republican, and he just so happened to then become the Treasury Secretary, and the George W. Bush. And And he just so happened to be the Treasury Secretary that pushed through, by brute force, the banker bailout back in, what was that, 2008, that Hank Paulson. So you see how the power structure works. And if you remember that banker bailout, that was totally illegal because spending bills are supposed to originate in the House. It failed in the House. Went back, they, they passed in the Senate, then went back to the House. That is totally, totally anti constitutional. It was illegal. It should It had to originate in the House. Uh, the House controls a purse. But in any case, I think you see my point. You look at Goldman Sachs and you look at the CEOs. You have Corzine, CEO of Goldman Sachs, becomes a Democratic senator, then a Democratic governor. Then you have Hank Paulson, becomes Republican Treasury Secretary. This is the game they play. So, What's playing out now with Cruz and the delegates? I mean, Trump and the delegates is you know Cruz. Cruz, of course, knows mathematically he can't win now, but he's running at the behest of the establishment just to frustrate Trump and try and stop Trump from getting over the top. But the whole idea of of this being a democratic process, the whole idea of the parties representing the will of the people, you know, one man, one vote. It's uh, it, it's a fantasy. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a fantasy. I don't. I don't just mean that in terms of how much money it takes to actually run a campaign. Okay, that that's that's just another issue. And again, if we went back to the way it was, if we had the state legislatures pointing centers, and then if we had one representative for every thirty thousand people, that, that's a lot more democratic. The way it is now, it's very very limited. I have uh, I've quoted from Carol Quigley before, Carol Quigley was historian. Among other things, Bill Clinton named him as one of his mentors he taught at Georgetown University. And his magnum opus is his masterwork. Masterpiece was Tragedy and Hope, History of the World of North Time. And he wrote a bunch of other books. I think you can still get Tragedy and Hope online, PDF. It's, uh, it's over a thousand pages. He wrote a, a number of books, and he, he would speak of the Anglo American Empire. The Anglo American Empire. I, my My phrase, my preferred phrase for that entity, the Anglo-American Empire, as as a power sphere, would be the New World Order. But but Quigley wrote in his book, Tragedy and Hope, uh, published in 1966, there does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the communist act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the Roundtable Groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups, and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims, and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected, both in the past and recently, to a few of its policies— but in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. So this is an Ivy League-educated historian writing books, you know, 500 to 1,000 pages, and he comes out this book in '66. Originally, the book was only supposed to have been distributed to members of the Council on Foreign Relations, but it eventually got out. And when that book got out, the reaction to that really started the modern, the modern patriot movement. This is also what, what Quigley wrote. The argument that the two parties should represent opposed ideals and policies, one perhaps of the right and the other of the left, is a foolish idea, acceptable only to the doctrinaire and academic thinkers. Instead, the two parties should be almost identical so that the American people can throw the rascals out at any election without leading to any profound or extreme shifts in policy. Uh, he said that on pages 1247 and 1248 of trashing hope. And he also had another another great quote in that book. <clears throat> the powers of financial capitalism had another far reaching aim. Nothing less than to create than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world, acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. <clears throat> the apex of the system was the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, <clears throat> a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. The growth of financial capitalism made possible a centralization of world economic control and use of this power for direct benefit of financiers and the indirect injury of all other economic groups. Quickly also wrote the Council of Foreign Relations is the American branch of society which originated in England and believes national boundaries should be obliterated and one world rule established. You notice i mean uh they tried they tried this thing they had a League of Nations, and uh League of Nations failed you know failed with World war one really and uh and after World War two after the League of Nations failed. One of the first things happened after World War II, the Rockefeller family donated some real estate in Manhattan to house what was the United Nations. So you notice, no matter what happens, what's happened since World War II, much has occurred. uh, The United Nations never goes away. The United States, last time I looked, uh, I think pays for about 25% of the budget of the United Nations. The United Nations sold... Objective again is to eliminate national boundaries. Never goes away. Doesn't go away. It's always there. And you're wondering why? Why don't things change? Why? Why is there no? Why is there no real difference? The Trump, the Trump candidacy is is huge. It's huge for this reason. Whether whether you love Trump or hate him or don't care about him, it's huge for this reason. Uh, win or lose, Trump is going to profoundly affect the two party system. When to lose, Trump is gonna profoundly affect the two party system. Let me explain that. If Trump loses, it could be argued he's gonna have a far greater effect upon the two party system than if he than if he wins. Back in back in the nineteen sixties, Barry Goldwater got the nomination. And it's funny this is also mentioned in, in Tragedy and Hope, which was written in sixty six, so it wasn't that long uh after that happened when uh Quigley had published that book, but Goldwater won. He won the nomination in spite of the fact the establishment hated him. Goldwater spoke about the United Nations. Uh, he understood this into, the intellect, the international influence. He he had the big picture down, so he was hated by the establishment. So, what did the establishment do? Even though he won the nomination, they openly ensured that he would lose. That he would lose to Johnson. Uh, you had people like Willard Mitt Romney, George Romney. Willard Mitt Romney's dad, George Romney, was governor of Michigan at the time, and he openly stated he wasn't supporting Barry, he wasn't supporting Barry Goldwater. Now, when you learn this history, which isn't that long ago, it shows you just how the horrific hypocrisy of the two-party system, in this case Republicans in particular, because when they get their person elected, when when they get when they get a traitor like Willard Mitt Romney elected or John McCain. Uh they try and beat up their constituents. Uh and say, well, you have to you may not have voted for him in the primary, but now now, you, know, you have to support him because uh yeah, you know, that that's what you do if you're loyal to the party. And they try and manipulate their base and a lot of it a lot of it's fear. A lot of fear mongering. Uh Hillary Clinton is a criminal. I mean, if you look at the emails, for example, um, there's many things she's done. She's lied. Uh, she's probably the only person that's lied more. I think is running down Ted Cruz, and that's hard to do. And certainly, her lives have been more spectacular than Cruz's lives. Uh, you know, Cruz, you know, reversing his position on uh, on birthright citizenship, natural citizenship, things like that. But, uh, Hillary Cruz, I mean, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> Hillary Clinton has lied so much, she lied about Benghazi, uh, the emails, um, people have gone to jail for, you know, one or two emails, uh, weren't, you know, basically not handling, uh, classified information in small amounts, and, yeah, you know, there's hundreds of emails, so, yeah, she should be in jail, uh, you may have seen or heard some T-shirts, Hillary, Hillary for prison, said Hillary for prison. But in spite of how horrific she is, if someone like Paul Ryan, if if them if the Republican convention goes down and they give it to someone like Paul Ryan, uh, she's not going to be significantly worse than Paul Ryan. Okay, she's not. And you could throw out something like you could throw out uh, a topic like gun control. Well, again, if the Republicans control the House and the Senate yeah there's very little there's very little they could do, except they cooperate. They let the president continue to exert to have these executive orders. <laughs> so they scare us. I mean they manipulate both sides to do that. Uh, the Democrats do that too. Many, many democratic voters see the hypocrisy of Hillary Clinton. They're seeing the hypocrisy on the democratic side of the superdelegates. delegates. Uh, the superdelegates comprise i'll pl- I'll play a clip in a, a few minutes. Superdelegates comprise. Uh, a third of the Democratic delegates are available. So it really doesn't matter how the Democrat popular vote goes. You just have to control the superdelegates, and that's part of Hillary's arrogance. She knows she has most of the superdelegates locked up, so it really doesn't matter what Bernie Sanders done, not that he would be significantly better than Hillary Clinton, but as far as this process, the illusion that the process in both parties is Democratic now, I mean, yeah, the masks is come, the mask has come off in a lot of cases. People are saying that. They're saying that. How does, that uh, how does the process shake out? On, them, on, the, uh, on the Republican side, a candidate must win the votes the majority of majority delegates to secure the nomination. So that number, the magic number, according to GOP's own site, is 1,237. That's 50% plus one because they set the number of 2,472 convention delegates beforehand. But the corruption on the Republican side, which is similar to the Democratic side, I mean, the Democratic side, it's more in your face because of the superdelegates. Really, the popular vote doesn't matter. On the Republican side, it's a little more sophisticated, but it'll also play play a video from uh, an RNC member, a Rules Committee member, who essentially says... The uh, popular vote means nothing. <laughs> it's the delegates. So you'd think if the system if the system was fair and it's not, the delegates' selection, to popular vote, but it doesn't. But let me play this. Uh, I'm going to play this reality check with Ben Swan about the, uh, the uh, Democratic side, about superdelegates. The
1: Democratic Party has a problem. Superdelegates.
4: A system the party created to protect itself from the wrong of Democratic nominee. those superdelegates from the wrong kind of Democratic nominee but those super delegates
3: Technical difficulties with Ben Swann's video. Ben Swann went on to say, as I mentioned, a third of the Democratic uh, delegates are controlled by superdelegates. The superdelegates are Democratic uh, party officials. Uh, they're uh, Democrats that are in Congress. Yeah, I think that they get fifty. They get fifty votes pop. So imagine, imagine going to your voting place and yeah, you get to vote fifty times. I mean, there's a there's a superdelegate at the convention. <laughs> and they've even admitted Debbie Washman Schultz, Democratic congressman, uh, who's DNC chair. She's even admitted openly. Again, the, the mask has come off this in this election cycle to some to a large degree, both parties of mass have come off. And uh you know, people were complaining about Bernie Sanders winning elections but not winning delegates in states and she basically said, I I didn't pull up that video, that the superdelegates exist. To essentially thwart the will of the people, to really to undermine the popular will of the people, that's uh, that's what uh, as Debbie washington Schiller says. On the Republican side, uh, we have this RNC, we have this RNC Rules Committee member, an unbound delegate from North Dakota, and he uh, he openly he openly said, even if Trump walks in to the convention with one thousand two hundred thirty-seven, that guarantees nothing, it means nothing, so. Let's uh, let's listen to what he has to say.
0: Level 37 that really matters is the sum of the total of the votes cast by the delegations at the convention in Cleveland. So whether or not anybody reaches 1237 will not be known until the first round of balloting in Cleveland.
5: And explain your own. You're an unbound delegate from North Dakota here. Um, you know, Donald Trump's argument is that delegates, I guess, should reflect the popular vote of the states uh, where it's given, um, and that you shouldn't be able to then just turn around and say, "Okay, well, I'm a t- uh, I'm a Cruz supporter." Uh, is, is he right about that? Is that do you think the risk here? Is that what's happening?
0: Well, no. The, there's a lot of misunderstanding about how uh, whether or not the delegates are bound in the first place. In North Dakota, we are not bound by any uh, by anything whatsoever. We've had no preference vote in the state. And all of our delegates are elected by the party at its state convention, completely unbound, and free to vote their conscience at the national convention.
4: Uh, Mr. Hogan, it's uh, Evan Newmark. I have a question regarding what you view the duty of a delegate is. And by that I mean, is it the duty of a delegate to put somebody who's going to win the general election? Is that the duty of a delegate, or is the duty of a delegate to vote basically whatever you know, his own heart
1: tells him to do?
0: Well, there's a, a lot of controversy about that, but my view is the delegates are all individuals, have been since the Republican Party was established, individuals entrusted with the responsibility and the duty to make their best judgment in, in deciding who to nominate for our, as our candidate to run in the general election in the fall. Uh, we've uh, In previous years, we've used primaries to probably get us some kind of an indication of, of the preference of the population. But the delegates at the convention choose the nominee, not the voters in the primaries.
4: You know, uh, however it might play out this time around, do you actually think there's going to be uh, serious attention to this system in general at this point? I mean, you actually have a lot of people uh, kind of crying about the uh, the logistics of it right now. Uh, Is it at risk uh, doing it this way down the road?
0: Absolutely not. Uh, We've had primaries since, uh, you know, whenever they started, January, February, whatever it was, but I'm going to propose, now I'm going to switch hats here a little bit. I'm a member currently of the RNC Rules Committee, but in Cleveland I'm going to be just a delegate to the convention, but I'm also going to be a member of the Convention Rules Committee. And the Convention Rules Committee is going to deal with the who do we nominate, who gets to be even considered for votes at the convention. And I'm going to propose, I announced six, uh, a year ago that I was going to propose an amendment at the Convention Rules Committee, which I'm going to deliver on, and that is to uh, nominate, or to, to Consider every contender to be deemed to be nominated if they have won even a single vote in a primary or a caucus. And that will give us eight candidates in the first ballot.
5: Curly, before we go I'll let you go, do you know who you're supporting yet?
0: I'm not telling. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret ballot. Something
6: tells me it's not Mr. Trump. <laughs> I don't know what, what what that is. You any comment <laughs> on that, Curly? No,
0: that's that's <laughs> <laughs> That's pure speculation on your part. Yeah. I'm uh, simply gonna I'm All simply right. gonna vote in secret and keep it that way
5: and vote your conscience. Curly, thank you for joining us.
3: Now, wasn't that cute? Curly Hogland, North Dakota RNC Rules Committee, Republican National Committee Rules Committee, and uh, also, you know, an unbound delegate. So, he's saying, the first thing he wants to do. There's two dynamics to the convention that are going to occur that will, that will determine the ultimate nominee. It's going to be the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee meets, and this shows you again how corrupt the system is. The rules, the rules aren't set for convention until the convention meets. That's right. So, yeah, that clown, Curly Hogland from North Dakota, just said the first thing he's going to do is propose a rule to say that anyone that's even got one vote is eligible. Okay, So it has nothing to do with the will of the people. Check this out. Right now, Donald Trump has over 2.3 million more votes than Ted Cruz. 2.3 million more votes. But what Cruz has done, Cruz and his organization has been sophisticated as, as far as the Republican Party, and they've gone to states like Colorado. Colorado does, didn't have a primary. There was, it was funny, there was, there was a measure for them to have a popular primary. And they uh they got rid of that and they they elected delegates at their convention, and they all mysteriously then they all went to uh, they all went to Cruz, and right after that someone had tweeted never Trump, but it's interesting, the uh, Breitbart wrote a piece published on April seventeenth that says revealed Colorado lawmakers who voted to scrape, or scrap election are Ted Cruz delegates, so the very same people in the some of the same people in the Colorado general general assembly. Who wanted to get rid of a popular primary? The same people that were supporting Cruz. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter. You look at the polls. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter what would have happened in a primary. Uh, it was confined to the number of people that went to that that went to that convention. Now think about that. Think about that. If you're if you're a party person, Republican or Democrat, and you think you think I'm being uh, I'm being uh, too critical of, of the party system. Think about how that really works. Okay, uh, the entire delegate system is designed to suppress and not reflect the popular vote. Now that's why we have 40% of the people won't vote in a presidential election, and it's even less in an off-presidential year. A lot of them don't do that, not because they're lazy, because they know the system. Know the system is rigged. Why Why does federal election law permit parties to control the process? In other words, why don't we have primary voting day across the entire nation for president? Now, if we did that, that would save a lot of money and time, wouldn't wouldn't it? If we had, by federal election law, we had one primary voting day, six, eight months before the general election, it's over in one day, just like a general election. But instead, we play, there's this ludicrous, corrupt, filthy system where oh no, we have to look. You know, the the entire folks of the nation is on Iowa and New Hampshire. <laughs> that's the way. That's the way they want it. Uh, how is it fair to to elect delegates at a party convention if it costs money to attend the party convention? In in North Carolina, they've increased the cost to attend the base. You know the base package, the lowest dollar amount you could attend now, it's ninety or ninety-five dollars to go and vote at the, uh, the GOP state convention in Greensboro this year. How's it fair to elect delegates to party convention if it costs time, time, uh, time, money then to travel there? So in other words, you can't just elect a delegate by voting locally. You have to. You'd have to go to the party convention. Consider the 24th Amendment to the Federal Constitution. Okay, That was proposed on August 27, 1962, and that was passed on January 23, 1964. Quote, Section 1, 24th Amendment, Federal Constitution, the right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president, for electors for president or vice president, or for senator or representative in Congress, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax or any or other tax. Section two, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. But did you catch the point at the end? The idea you have the right of the citizens of the US to vote in a primary or election for president or VP or electors for president or VP shall not be denied or abridged by the US or any, or any state or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax or any other tax. What's well, a poll tax? It's a tax to vote. In in North Carolina, the grassroots won uh, won, won a major upset last year. We identified with the grassroots. I was at the state convention last year. We evict, we elected a gentleman named Hassan Hornet to be our state chairman, and that that sent shockwave shockwaves to the party. And since they won, the the powers that be, the so called central committee, uh. Senate committees comprised of these th- those who are chairs of the congressional the congressional districts. They, they've they've undermined him from day one. They didn't let him uh, they didn't let him select who he wanted as executive director. They undermined from day one. One of the one of the things Hassan stressed stressed when he ran is that he wanted a free convention. He said part of the reason Republicans in North Carolina continue to lose. People are becoming uh, independent is because, you know, voter access to these conventions. It costs more and more. So they not only wouldn't let him uh, make it free, they they increased the price to, to just further uh, to invite him. But that's how the system works. This guy, uh, th- th- this Curly Hogland guy, he had another interview on MSNBC. This one was over the phone, and this was months prior. Okay, this one goes back about over a month prior, think, sometime in March. And he openly admitted in this one that the party chooses the nominee, not the voters. Yeah, he made, he made, didn't attempt to conceal that at all.
5: convention?
6: In there's the that way. I don't see very many that would go down a different path. In that
5: situation? what will you be considering, what types of rules will you be considering, because right now the rules say that you have to win at least eight states or eight uh, different districts in order to be considered, and the only person who's done that far is Donald Trump.
6: Well, and that's a misunderstanding. That rule actually is different than that. That's a vote that needs to be taken at the convention of the delegates. Uh, the requirement is that the uh, candidate must demonstrate the support of eight, de- uh, majority of the delegates from eight Eight states that are currently seated, so that vote can't even be taken until the convention. So, obviously, uh, no determination can be made until the convention.
5: So, that, that vote that we thought, or that rule that we thought stood, is not a rule that actually stands?
6: No, it is a rule that stands, but the rule says specifically that it's a vote of the delegates at the convention oh, to not determine a, the, the majority, not a, not a primary vote. The primary votes are not considered. Delegates' votes, the delegates have to, can't, cannot vote. Until are currently seated, and that's the first action there,
5: to, so. most of the delegates are going to be bound delegates who are required to vote as for them. I think there's only like 160 unbound delegates. And Gary, maybe you can weigh in and say whether you think um, things will go, how, how you think things will go on this first vote. Most of these delegates are bound.
1: Well, first of all, uh, North Dakota is uh, one of the states. There's three states and two provinces, the two um, territories that have unbound I delegates, I Correct. think there's about 112 of them. And, and North Dakota is what our convention in April uh, 1st, and then that will determine if I'm actually one of the elected delegates that are, that are elected are the convention. So what happens is, let's Trump gets to 95% or 90% or Ted Cruz. What happens is those unbound delegates have the ability to vote for whatever candidate they want on the first ballot. And that is what the change gets who will be uh, voting on that first ballot. And, of course, once you go to the second ballot, if no one wins 50%, which is really majority 50% plus one, then it's all that's up.
5: Okay. I understand that these are the rules and that there's all kinds of crazy, arcane rules that could be voted on between now and then. Curly, let me ask you. If Donald Trump heads into the nomination, maybe he's short of the 1237 required. If you give it to someone who has a much less, percentage of the voters who have actually turned out in these primaries, don't you worry that you are going to just send chaos and anger into the Trump supporters and the people who feel like their votes don't matter.
6: No, I don't think that's the case once it you know, if it would just be understood. We have a problem with the media. Unfortunately the cable networks are trying to turn I think if
5: have a problem with the media, I've heard from a lot of voters <laughs> who say if they feel like their votes got stolen they would be very angry and very angry. I, I think looking at a different situation, I realize these have been rules, but the last was put in place was 1976, it's been a long time
6: since then. Yeah, they're still there. Yeah, that's a problem. The the, uh, the media has created the perception that the voters will decide the nomination. That's the, concept, that's the conflict here. It, it,
5: it's, it's like we live in a democratic society, which is not a democratic society, and your votes necessarily matter because it's a democratic representation, correct?
6: Oh, that's what I'm trying to tell you. What I'm political parties, the political parties choose their nominee, not the general public uh, category popular belief.
5: <laughs> <And> why are <laughs> they holding the primaries?
6: That's a very good question. Look, a Republican. No, no, no. no, no
4: because because Republican would say that, you know, the, the people, what the
1: people say matters, big government is bad. That, I would assume that's your view. Well, part of the problem is perception is reality in politics. And so if the Republicans go in and pull some shenanigans, so you have groups of people who are going to try to take the rules committee that can change everything and the same with the delegates and the people across the country who are very frustrated not that vote in the general election this fall for Republican candidates.
3: Okay. So you caught that mister Curly Hogland was asked then, well, then why, why do we bother with head of primaries if uh, it's just merely a matter of delegates selecting, uh, not, the uh, nominee says, I don't know. Good question. He just says, good question. So, it's in your face. Uh, I said at the start of the program, whether you like Trump or dislike him or don't care, that he's going to have profound effect on two-party systems for this reason. Two-party system is like a triangle. Okay, you look at the tip of a triangle and one side supports the other. One side supports the other. They lean against one another. Uh, if you take... You remove one side of the triangle, then the other side falls down. It's that simple. Most people, say most people and make a generalization, most people vote against candidates. Most people will vote against candidates. So they don't really, Republicans who voted for Willard Mitt Romney really didn't like Willard Mitt Romney. They disliked Barack Hussein Obama, a.k.a. Barry Satoru. Barry Shatoru, was his name growing up. Uh, Lola Satoru had adopted him. Uh, yeah, that's all. Uh, that's all out there from Indonesia. Uh, who was who Barry Satoru's dad? Uh, I'm not sure, but that's another topic. In any case, same thing. Uh, a lot of the Democrats who voted for Barack Hussein Obama, aka Barry Satoru did not like, didn't necessarily like Barack Hussein Obama that much, especially after after four years. <laughs> When he didn't deliver, when we had an increase in the illegal wars, uh, the uh, Guantanamo Bay wasn't shut down. Uh, Several liberties continued to erode. Uh, 2012, uh, NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, saying any U.S. citizen without due process could be executed anywhere in the world or detained indefinitely if he's declared an enemy combatant. No. Uh, It wasn't like, yeah, Barack Hussein Obama was that popular, but... People were voting against Willard Mitt Romney. So the Trump thing is this is really huge because, and I, I think the uh, the RNC people they know this. They know they know their backs against the wall on this. If they throw the will of the people, and like I said, at this point Trump's got 2.3 million more votes than Cruz. Before it's all over, it'll be I don't guess to well over three million. I'm not sure California. He could be well well over four million? He's going to have more, probably four million more votes than Cruz when it's all over. So, if they go into this convention, someone like Lindsey Graham, uh, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, another traitor, uh, he said, if Trump shows up one delegate short, yeah, he's not getting the nomination. So, if if they do this, if 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 the will of the people is thwarted, then that's going to bring down the Republican Party, not overnight. But it is, it is going to dissolve, and we will see a populist-type party. I don't know what they'll call it. Uh, populist wouldn't be a bad name, but we'll see another party pop up. And it's going to be real hard for the Democratic Party not to dissolve then, too, in rapid succession in a short period of time because they'll lose their power and won't go away overnight. But if you don't have the Republican Party having national promise anymore, why are Democrats going Democrats to continue to vote against Republicans when are not on the ballot? You get that, or they can't get elected. Do you get that point? You can't vote against someone when the other guy, the other party, doesn't have that power. Doug Weed is a presidential historian. He worked for the Ron Paul campaign. He's a very, very interesting, very interesting character. And uh, Weed has broken it down as far as what would uh, what's going to happen at the convention. And uh, he takes a more... He he doesn't take as critical a view of what's going on. He's he's not ignorant. He fully understands that the uh, political establishment is aligned against Trump. Yeah, you know, he's he, he's fully aware of that. But he basically says there's there's two things that are going to happen. It's not just the rules committee that's going to meet early on. It's the credentials committee, and and even Corey Hog Hoglund mentioned that it's the credentials committee so What what does the credentials committee do? And I've seen this. I've seen this at the county level, at the level of state convention, with the GOP. The, uh, the credentials committee determines. Okay, you have X number of people that have registered beforehand to be at the convention. When credentials committee comes there, it's not it's not an automatic process that those people get seated. Okay, why? Some people may not show up. Okay, there's a you know You have 2,472 convention delegates. Some may not show up uh could be sickness, could be business other other reasons, so there's alternates, so you determine who's going to get seated. and but it gets more interesting than that it's not just the alternates uh there has been voter fraud. I can admit this on this show. I think the listeners of k r p are are stupid enough to know they're enlightened enough to know about political reality. there's there's political uh there's vote fraud all over the country in different ways. With these machines, you know, we have North Carolina. It's worse than South Carolina. Uh, that they could, they could do whatever they want. Uh, they like to keep it, though. It's difficult to steal a race. If the polls have someone with double-digit leads, you can't steal that race. That's part of the reason they couldn't steal the race in South Carolina from Trump because the poll numbers were that dominant. If it's under five percent, that they could, they could put whoever. Yeah, you know, they could, they could control that race. In Texas. Uh, Cruz, Cruz's people, Republican Party, had cheated, and uh, Wisconsin, Cruz's people, had cheated. I won't go into the details. You can see the stuff in Wisconsin really easy when you look at the polls beforehand. You can break it down by county. They uh, they stole Wisconsin. So Trump Trump has uh, hired or uh, promoted a guy named Paul Manafort in his organization, is technical, technically for the Trump campaign. He's uh, he's the convention manager. But the first thing they're going to do, the Trump campaign is going to do, is they're going to challenge these delegates. Uh, they're going to challenge a lot of the delegates. So when you look at the process, even though they can and will change the rules, like Corey Holman said, it's it's totally perverse. Why, why are you going to say anyone that got one vote could get elected? Because obviously it's just another method to divide the vote and to deny Trump the nomination, especially if it goes to a second ballot vote. But the Credentials Committee... Is going to be huge in this. And uh, let's listen to what Doug Weed says about this, about why front runners normally win. Hey,
7: if it, 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 the Republicans really have a squabble on their hands in Cleveland, they don't have a clear nominee. It can get nasty, but it doesn't always have to be that way. It's how you see how they're acting in the various delegations and working with each other, coaxing each other, presidential historian. Doug beat on that process, and Doug, I was to my producer earlier on about how Bobby Kennedy was going through the delegations for his brother Jack, um, because all of a sudden BJ, who had never run in a single primary, saying, well, you know, I might just pull together just what I need to take this from you. And it's all about going state by state by state, isn't it? And
4: individual by individual by individual at the convention, it's it's going to be very interesting. I've got a scene in my book called The President's Children, where breathless comes up with a carriage in 1852 in New Hampshire, and he stops the carriage, and he says, Senator Pierce, you were just nominated for President of the United States on the 49th ballot at the Democrat National Convention in Baltimore, his wife falls over in a dead seat. So we're back <laughs> to some
7: of those exciting moments. <laughs> well, we don't go to 49, but the problem is that it might go multiple ballots. It, I guess a lot would depend on if Donald Trump as the leader now, state leader now, how close he is to that 1237. close closer you are, usually the easier it is to cobble together some stray delegates here and there, uncommitted delegates. But even there, Cruz has been able to get quite a few. Um, play it out for me. What do you think? Yeah. You know, Martha McCallum on
4: this network yesterday said something very profound. She she said. Uh, uh, it seems to me there's a certain momentum in gathering the delegates at the convention itself, yes. and nobody paid attention to that, but <laughs> is is very, very true. There is momentum. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Would you rather sell 40 vacuum cleaners or have to sell 240 vacuum cleaners? And you get an idea. Uh, it, I was born in 1946, and no presidential nominee in my lifetime went into the Convention is the front runner uh, and didn't get the nomination. It's happened in the past, but not in my lifetime. So th- it's just a lot easier if you're 20 or 30 away
7: than it is if you're 240 away. Unless the party I thing against you is Donald Trump's people claim it does with him, and that if he were in one away, they'd bring in their party to stop well, yes, that's true. But
4: for the establishment to get to the multiple ballots, they've got to take control of the Rules Committee. And both Trump and Cruz have a vested interest in bleeding away those delegates from the Rules Committee. Well and the next thing you guys are going to talk about in the next week is the Credentials Committee. So the establishment right. not only has to own one, it has to own the other two. All right. I can't wait for that.
7: All right. I'm going to my friend
3: so that is that will explain how pay, how it's going to play out uh really the the uh, g o p establishment as uh representing uh, the anglo american empire or part of the New world order has this problem on their hands they really uh heads that one tells you this at this point if they deny trump the nomination uh the party fractures and that would be that would be an awesome thing if they give it to him. Uh, they'll probably run someone like Willard Mitt Romney as third-party candidate, and attempt to. You know he doesn't have. To, he doesn't have to be Willard Mitt Romney or whoever they throw in on the ballot, and as an independent, they don't have to be on an all 50-state ballot. Just have to be on enough to make sure Hillary goes over the top. And some uh, people like Bill Kristol have said neocon. Uh, yeah, he'd he'd vote for Hillary over or, 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 uh Trump. So you know, the mass has come up, has come off. I would say vote. Uh, the way, the reason I say to vote is to let the people, the powers that be know, let the powers that be know you are watching them. Uh, but obviously, if you can't vote for someone in good conscience, then you, know, you cast a protest vote. Uh, not voting isn't going to change things, uh, but voting, of course, <laughs> when you give them false choices, doesn't change things. A protest vote at least makes a statement, moves in the right direction. Uh, I talked in the past about how, if we have this, we have federal election law. If they wanted the system to be better, they could pass federal election law and have one primary day, six eight months before a general election, and they could make it based upon the popular vote, or they can make it they can make it mirror a proportional system like the electoral college. But that could easily be done. So they could eliminate uh, a lot of the corruption. They could eliminate a lot of that corruption if they wanted to do that what what's really how how did you know the founders of the country view political parties that's a, that's an interesting question because now you know we grow up in this system that they have uh they have a two-party system but how how could was it always like that you know was it really always like that not so uh not so George Washington's Farewell Address uh it was published originally September 19, 1796. After he served eight years as president, and of course, uh, you know, he was General George Washington before that, and he had some very, some very critical things to say about political parties. Then they called them sex. So let me read, let me read about how George Washington viewed political parties. Quote: The basis of our political systems is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. But the Constitution, which at any time exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. All obstructions to the execution of the laws, all combinations and associations, under whatever plausible character, with the real design to direct, control, counteract, or awe the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities, are destructive of this fundamental principle and of fatal tendency. They serve to organize faction. That was the word he used for parties. That was the word they used for parties. They serve to organize faction to give it an artificial and extraordinary force To put in the place of the delegated will of the nation uh, the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and according to the alternate triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-conceived and incongruous projects of faction, rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interests." However combinations or associations of the above description may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely, in the course of time and things, to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the the power of the people and to assert for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. I uh, I kinda I, I do agree with George Washington. And here here's something else, okay? Um, you could pass a federal law at the federal level. I mean let the states, the states care parties. So the federal level, no candidate for federal office can be part of a political party. Boom. Eliminate political parties. Uh some people would say, Well the ballots are gonna be really long. Well, you could you could work that out as far as ballot as far as signatures required, but the governments the state and federal level they they waste so much money is it really an issue? You know, would it really bother you to go into a ballot, uh, to go into an election booth, and and have a ballot that was eight pages long? No, it wouldn't bother me whatsoever. It wouldn't bother me whatsoever. Uh, the more candidates would be, the better, and uh, without any parties there. The way the political system works is they give us false choice. They give us false choices that's been borne out very clearly at different levels. The way the political system also works is they get us to debate, have lively debate within the parameters they set. In other words, they get us to debate very lively, yeah, you know, very vociferously. You can see that, you see that on talk radio. You see that on, uh, you can see that on cable news. But they only want you to have that lively debate in, within the bounds that they set. Once you start talking about things that, well, why don't we have a federal election law to make it one primary day? Why don't we eliminate the delegates and have it be popular vote? <laughs> Why don't we, at the federal level, eliminate political parties? They're not going to debate that, because it's not about empowering you as an individual. It's about keeping us in the dark. It's about controlling us. I hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, Pudgy Miller will be back next week. K-I-R-P Radio.
1: K-I-R-P Radio!